Welcome to Lady Bits in Leadership, a brave space where women come together to share stories about our bodies, our sexuality, and motherhood. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Vogel, and my mission in life is helping women feel less alone, process their trauma, and build the lives they desire. So if you're ready to join a community of women who have found their voices, who have become liberated from shame and reclaim their power, then you're in the right place, girl. You found us. We're so happy you're here. Aloha and welcome back to Lady Bits and Leadership. It's been a while, my friends. I am thrilled to be back and I am so thrilled to be back here on May 1st, 2022, what we celebrate in Hawaii as Lay Day. Now, some people celebrate May Day. May Day to us is Lay Day. And so what this looks like on our island, I mean, Today in Hilo, Hawaii, it is incredibly rainy. There's a little tropical storm coming through, but flowers are in bloom everywhere across the island. And our flower for our island is the Ohia Lehua, which is a beautiful bright red blossom with all these little kind of frilly, mm, it looks like a little pom-pom. It's so gorgeous. And we see it in lots of different elevations here. And I love walking through Volcano National Park, looking at these beautiful blossoms. Um, This holiday that we celebrate, Lay Day, is really a chance for us to share with the world what aloha means to us. And oftentimes when people come to visit, you give them a lei as a symbol of welcome. I love you, that you're giving a part of you to them, that you're welcoming them with this beautiful spirit of aloha, as we say. It's always been my favorite part about coming home when I used to live on the continental US is coming home to the Honolulu airport and smelling the mix of diesel jet fuel and plumeria lays or any of the fragrant lays really. It is just such a beautiful day. And in our state and in our tradition, it's a tradition that's almost 100 years old. I'm just so happy to be back here and to be back here on such a glorious day to share the aloha because I really do feel like this podcast is my way to show you all love and aloha, that spirit of giving, that spirit of I see you, I understand you, and I love you. And so today's episode, we took a little break and I will I will tell you what's been going on. I mean, in brief, I've been having a lot of health issues, both physical and mental health um, concerns. And so the short version of it is I'm, I am fine. Everything's going to be fine. But sometimes we do need to take rest, right? We need to need to take that period of time for ourselves to figure ourselves out, to recalibrate, to breathe, to feel like it's okay to set things down sometimes, you know, and just kind of eliminate all the things that don't need to happen if you are struggling. And so, you know, for me, I obviously cannot let go of being a mother. I have to keep showing up for my son and for as a wife, for my husband, but everything else kind of took a back burner. And as someone who is incredibly driven, motivated, high achieving, oftentimes suffers from perfectionism, this is really hard to do. It's really hard to accept that you need to take a break. It's really hard to set down my goals, especially of building this podcast and providing to you all these wonderful interviews that I've had with beautiful souls across the world. It was really hard to do that, but I needed to take this month for myself to talk to my doctors, to get some testing done, to get some blood work done. 
and recalibrate my medication to make sure that I'm the best version of myself for my family and my loved ones, for the people that I work with at the college that I work at, and for you all who are listening in. And so it just brings me great joy to be back here again, to be speaking to the mic again and talking to you all and to be back on your airwaves. And in honor of Lady, I am having my friend Michiko Kealoha, who has come on the podcast. And she has some amazing insights to share about things like breastfeeding, becoming a new mom, balancing your personal and professional goals with new motherhood, and finding your community of people who will support you through the good times and the tough times. Michiko and I met at the University of the Pacific when we were, we were both college students at the same time. We both became resident advisors at the same time, student leaders essentially who work in the residence halls to build inclusive communities for students to feel their best, to feel at home, to feel safe, to to feel like they matter at the college. It was such beautiful work that both launched us into careers within student affairs, and we still work as leaders within higher education today. So Michiko works as the student life and leadership manager at Kanyala College in the Bay Area, and she is a doctoral candidate defending in a couple weeks for her doctorate of education in international and multicultural education with an emphasis in human rights. Michiko is just such a joy to speak with, even though, you know, 15 years has passed since we've seen each other, really. It's like, it's funny that we are in the same stage in life, right? New moms trying to understand and balance the high achieving goals that we have of making a difference for college students, while also becoming moms who are trying to to define for ourselves what's important in life. And in this conversation, we talk a lot about breastfeeding because that's like, you know me, I'm talking about all the lady bits. Okay. We're going to talk about boobies and the milk that comes out of it. Because frankly, that was one of the trippiest things about becoming a mom was a couple months that I chose to breastfeed and having your milk come in. And there was a lot of things that both of us experienced. We just didn't know about, right? We don't talk about the ugly, messy things of motherhood, of womanhood sometimes. And that leaves people at a disadvantage. So we talk about what we were told before going into motherhood and what we actually experienced and how those things differ. She breastfeeds on the podcast, which that's awesome. I mean, talk about balancing your professional and personal goals and motherhood. I mean, yes, whip that booby out, feed that baby. The girl needs to eat. Okay. And so I don't know, maybe that's the first on podcasts. Anyone else had experienced a breastfeeding podcast? That's fantastic. Right. We talk a lot about how, when she returned to work, the messages that she received after being uh, gone for so long because her pregnancy pregnancy was incredibly difficult. She did have to take time off because of how sick she was and how much pain she was in. Um, And so the messages that she received was like, we got this without you. We don't need you. And whether or not people intended that or not, that was what she experienced. That was her, that was the message she got from those that she worked with. Not everyone, but some people. And I think that those are forms of gender discrimination that again, often aren't as talked about and often remain under the radar. So it's really important that we talk through what those messages look like and how she fought through them through having a community, a best friend who she could be totally vulnerable with, a community of scholar mothers that were going through the same situation she was going to school while having a baby and how she maintained the resilience 
and the un- and the belief in herself to keep moving forward. I am just so thrilled by this conversation. I'm so proud of Michiko. I'm so excited she's been she has been selected as her class's commencement speaker this year. So best of luck to you Michiko as you present to the entire college your story and what you have discovered on this journey thus far and where you think this story is going next for you. Because as we know, or maybe don't know, commencement or graduation, the word commencement means to begin. Yes, you are closing out a time of developing yourself personally and professionally. But I think the most exciting part about May in general, when we have commencements going on for high school graduations, college graduations, we're about to have ours here in Hawaii in two weeks, um, where there, there will be more lays, much more lays piled onto all the students' heads, which is just such a beautiful sight, is that this is the beginning of the rest of their lives, right? This is the beginning of a new chapter anyway of their lives, of many chapters to come in their book of life. And so I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to be sharing these conversations with you. I can't wait to see all the amazing takeaways that you have from this episode. So without further ado, please welcome Michiko Kealoha to Lady Bits and Leadership. So I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, Lady Bits and Leadership. I really look to you as someone who, from the moment that I met you, had an air of power, an air of beauty, an air of confidence, whether you thought that or not in our like late teens, early 20s. <laughs> um, and so I'm so excited to, to have you on because you and I have both kind of taken this journey from the University of the Pacific, where you're both resident advisors, and we've gone through such interesting careers through higher education, through student affairs, and then now our latest adventures in motherhood. And so, you know, on Lady Bits and Leadership, we're all about sharing with the community the various kind of gendered experiences that we as women experience and how those intersect with things like race, religion, different identities that we inhabit. And the whole idea behind it is the more that we can share and be open and honest with other women who are growing in their leadership capacity and potential, they can see themselves and the guests. They can see that it's possible. So I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So let's start by introducing who you are. What's your journey been with, um, gosh, I guess we could start with career. Well, it, I think, right, inspired by even what you were just talking about is like, wow, it's wild to think, right, we were sitting on resident assistant training together and became senior resident assistants on this like leadership council and to know now that you are a doctor and you are right. Like you are, and you're almost a doctor and I'm so close. When is, when are you officially being dubbed doctor in May? And so I'm finishing my last chapter right now at like the 3am feedings of baby. I'm like writing it on my phone as I go. Um, No freaking way. Okay. Let's just pause here and stop and talk about this because I did not have a baby during my doctorate program at the end of my doctorate in education program, I was pregnant. And so that thankfully I had a relatively easy pregnancy up until the end, but you are writing your dissertation. You are writing your original research at 3am on your phone while feeding an infant. Talk to us about how we do this because, you know, many people would look at this and be like, it's, it's impossible, but you're showing them that it is possible. So I want to hear about this. Well, 
I'm really grateful. So I'm in a doctorate program at University of San Francisco in their international and multicultural um, education program. And I get to do an emphasis in human rights. And I think what's amazing about that is when you're thinking about like incredible women who are doing things in the community and around the world, like pretty much all of my professors are women of color who are mother scholars. And that has been one of the most inspiring and uplifting things for me. And they hold like free writing sessions for any of the students in the master's or the doctoral program. Right. And one of the professors who I've never even had a formal class with was like, you know, we keep thinking, oh, we need how many hours and we keep pushing back our writing because we think we need to sit at a computer and do stuff. And really we need 30 minutes a day, five days a week. And we can, we can squeeze that in, in whatever way. This professor was saying, you know, I had a 30 minute commute to, to work. And so I did it on my phone and we have a lot of stereotypes of like, oh, we can't get work done on our phone. But if you just try and do that writing in that time, you can get stuff done. And I was like, you know what? I'm up with the baby from like three to four 30 doing night feed and getting her back down. Her eyes are closed. So I'm not worried about screen time. And I am like fully awake and usually just scrolling on Facebook. So let me just give it a try. And I have gotten all of my date, like I have two data chapters and I have gotten a hundred pages written on my phone and my dissertation chair has seen it and said, these are great. Like you're going to be ready to graduate in May. (laughs) I mean, that's just the reality of having to get things done because I'm working full time, leading a student life department. I'm teaching part time, trying to be a, a good daughter and granddaughter and wife and mom. And so that's been my kind of only time to be able to really write. And so I'm, I'm going to take it because at this point I want to graduate. Yeah. And I think that's given me a lot of insight for my students too, because so many of my students only have a cell phone to do so much of their work. And so being able to connect with students in that way and talk about what opportunities they have to write or to do their own scholarship has been really helpful as an educator too. Do you type like text or do you voice to text? Because I feel like when I was breastfeeding, it was just a lot of hands navigating a lot of body parts, <laughs> you know, my son's and mine. So I felt like I that was when I learned how to voice to text. And it was just life-changing because my, my pregnancy gave me a lot of issues with my tendons and my hands and my feet. So everything was really tight for a really long time. And so I was already having issues with like small... Um, you know, texting on a small phone. And I have to say like voice memos, voice to text has just been life-changing for me. And I use it a lot for, you know, like if I'm inspired with an idea on, on the road for Lady Bits and Leadership, <laughs> it's like voice to text, you know, send myself voice memo. Do you do that or do you manage? Oh my goodness. I, I use Surrey a lot and like, hey, Suri, can you remind me in an hour to add to chapter four, this blah, 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 you know, and it's so funny that, oh, she's going right now. Thank you, Suri. So helpful. Um, and so when I, when I get that, then I'm like, oh, and, and I used to do that a lot when driving or commuting. Mm-hmm. And now with the pandemic, because I'm really not leaving and getting to go anywhere. And a lot of the times it's like when she's like sleep feeding on me, then I'm not doing voice to text. But it's so interesting, right? Of like, I had forgotten and you reminded me about I was in so much physical pain after giving birth that I could not even like pick her up without assistance. Like they damaged the outside of like my nerve. Who's there? Like, when they were um, the one of the nurses was putting in the IV into the wrist. Mm-hmm. 
to give birth. There was so much damage caused that there was like so much pain for maybe five months. Like that really just started to go away. And there's still times that I just like, I can feel it, but I could hardly move my hand at all. Mm-hmm. So it's funny, right? Like what our, what our minds forget that our bodies have gone through. Oh, I don't forget. people don't I was just talking to my mother-in-law about this yeah Yeah, I was like I was promised so many things about pregnancy as like Mm. people said it as assurances as like this is definitely gonna happen and one of those things was well you'll just forget all the pain that you went through because if you didn't then you wouldn't have any more children But I feel like a lot of the pain was, I'm sure there's been things that I've forgotten, but so much of the experience is seared into my brain. Like I I really kind of look at my birth as a a traumatic experience. And so I think that that's something that is important when I'm talking to new moms or mom, people that want to become moms to be really open about that because I didn't get that when I was, when I was pregnant or before I became pregnant. Even just being sick, like having, um, morning sickness. (laughs) I had morning sickness for most of my pregnancy and had not thought that was a thing. And my mom was like, I wasn't sick a single day. And she had always talked about pregnancy so differently. And our experiences were so polar opposite of each other. So I really appreciate you making sure that women hear all sorts of different stories because I was just so sick and so miserable. And I had to take basically like a semester off from being a student because I, I couldn't physically like sit up for how many months and right and I hadn't really had that many folks that had gone through pregnancy that I could talk to that I knew and so I'm really grateful for our shared acquaintance Linda who kept sending me reassuring texts of like you're gonna get through this and you're strong and I was sick too and like you can do this because otherwise it felt like really lonely Well, because our partners can only be empathetic to a certain extent, you know, they love us and, but they're not going through it. They are not living in our bodies and our minds. And it really is a physical, a hormonal, biological shift that is, you know, I think that's another thing too, that you talked about the, you talked about how much you're balancing, right? And so many of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast are balancing all the things. They're balancing careers, they're balancing motherhood, maybe of one or multiple children. They're balancing being a partner, being a sister and and a daughter and, and like having extracurriculars or different things that they like to do, like go to the gym or have a hobby, crochet group. I don't know. But if we focus on the career piece, Mm. you know, again, we're sold this idea that like women can do it all. They can have babies and they can have careers. They can have babies, have careers and do education. And I know that you're doing that, you know, but I think Mm. along the way, if they don't have a strong community behind Mm. them, if they don't identify cheerleaders in their lives, like for you, it was Linda, who's like, girlfriend, I've been through this. <laughs> you can do it. And I know it because I know you're strong and resilient and you have grit, you know, like if you don't have that, it's easy for people to give up on their goals, their professional and their personal goals. Mm. How did you find that in your career, in your school, in your personal life? What would you suggest to them? Ooh. I mean, for me, Linda was my OG and I needed to really be vulnerable too. of like, did you go through this? Did you know anybody who went through this? Right. And having that person was really crucial. I think something that I did not think would 
manifest or the mother scholars in my program and just being really honest with those women. And like, we started a text group of like, just checking in with each other and being really honest of like, no, I didn't get my writing goals done. And I feel sick and I feel like I'm unmotivated today and just sending pictures, sending texts with those folks and being honest and then really creating a community where, you know, we weren't even doing classes in person or even classes together at all and still checking in with each other. The years that takes to like get through this program has been really, really important. And I don't think that would have manifested if we hadn't just like, hey, did anybody like not understand this? And just being vulnerable and maybe not always hearing back. And then when I do, just having so many, I said, women scholars who have been through it before that have been so supportive. And if I hadn't had that community, I don't know if I would be graduating in May. I love the term mother scholars. I love that term. I've literally never heard that. Did you all make that up or is that something in writing? <laughs> I mean, one of my, my classmates started like a mother or a parent scholars group. And they're talking about radical parenting together and their, their children are older and it's really been sparked, I think, by the pandemic and them like, what do I do when I have my grown children, like who can't be in school in my home when I'm working full time and they've been doing some tremendous work. So as a new mom with a baby, not in school yet, then I've been even learning a lot from them and how do I be a better colleague and friend and even educator to my students who are parents scholars, knowing like they're taking virtual classes right next to their children taking virtual classes. And what does that mean? What's been the biggest surprise about new motherhood? I know we talked a bit about pregnancy, but what about, I mean, after the baby's born, they're just like, okay, (laughs) you know how to buckle them into their car seat. You watch the videos, chest harness goes here on the chest. Okay. Bye. That was my experience. I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) They're like, we'll see you uh, in two days for your checkup for the, you and the baby. Right. Like you're just going to let me girl go in the wild world. Right. I had gotten Kaiser classes. And I think that's the wild thing about being like learning to mom in the pandemic of the Kaiser folks didn't even know how to teach this class they've been teaching for years online. So there are no visuals. So I'm just trying to listen to like what they're saying about what I need to do for like changing diapers and latching. And it just was so difficult. So I was just trying to scramble on YouTube of like, how do I get the baby to latch? And like, what's a football hold? And like, how painful is this breastfeeding? And like, do I, do I truly need to continue to do this for my baby's health? And just, right. And it was just all like trying to call people, trying to text people, trying to watch YouTube videos and such a scramble. And I think where my head is at right now that I was just like in shock about trying to work full time, coming back from maternity leave and just being knocked on my ass of how much my baby was going to be sick from daycare. I really did not know that at all of like, we have been sick every day since the third day she's been going to daycare in October. And I'm like, is this normal? And the pediatrician's like, yeah, you should expect to be sick for the next six years. (laughs) Whoa. And just like the quality of my work and what I have been able to do in the past is just, I've had to just be like, okay, I have to let that go. On one hand, she's building a very strong immunity, (laughs) very strong immune system, as are you. 
And on the other hand, I think you hit something that is so probably universal, you know, about letting expectations go, Mm. especially for high achievers who become parents who are very career focused, you know, like you and I, and like many people who will be listening is the way the ferocity and like the volume of product before having a baby Mm. and the volume and the way that you approach your work after a baby fundamentally has to change because Mm -hmm. your life fundamentally changed. And the sooner that you can work into accepting that, because it's, it takes a lot of like mind going through a lot of mind drama of like, but I should be producing the same amount of work because that's what mother scholars, mother scholar workers do is they just (laughs) do it. I just will get it done. I'll find the time. And Oftentimes it takes people completely letting their mental health go down the toilet before Mm -hmm. they realize like, oh, I can't do it all. And I do have to start making adjustments, you know, and I do have to realize what my values are. Is my value going to be my career or is my value going to be my family? And how do I give, how do I mentally take a little bit of a break every single day of like giving myself a break? It's like acceptance of -hmm. this is your new reality and also forgiving yourself. Cause I feel like there's a lot of blame of like you should, and a lot of shoulds, like you should (laughs) be able to do this. Yeah. How did you get to the place where you were like, I can't be producing this much work. Like what were some of those messages or conversations you had with your partner or your workplace to say like, I, I can't do it. I mean, it was my very first week back from maternity leave. We had just survived 72 hours on a blackout with no power in our brand new apartment that we had just moved into. And I'm I'm supposed to start my first day of work and my partner is starting their first day of work at a new job and we have no power. And so we're trying to do our first day virtually from a Starbucks. Then I get into work the next day when we all the school has power again and try and figure out, okay, so I took this many months off trying to recuperate. And then I'm like up at seven with meetings and, or up at three with the baby seven with for meetings at work. And then I'm on campus for a special event until 8 PM. We're cleaning up that day was so full of different things. And like, I'm cleaning up pumpkins and face paint at 8 PM, having been up since three. And I went home and I was like, something's got to change. I can't like, it was just so physically demanding. And I had a meeting with my supervisor the next day. And I was like, I I don't know if I just am too old for this job, but it was just so physically demanding that I just, I'm not sure what to do. And I think the reality is, it's like, I don't know what the balance is going to look like after the pandemic, because the only reason why it's not as intense as it has been is because we're getting pushed to virtual again. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's the scary, like gray area of what will my, my responsibilities and my job look like. I think what's, what's really sad that I've learned too, is like coming back from maternity leave, I've realized that there are, unfortunately, it not only feels like that it's, there are a few men who really want my job, who it feels like they're making it very unwelcome so that I will give up and quit so they can go after my job. Um, Not welcoming me back, saying it was better off when I was gone on my very first day back from maternity leave, and then just 
rolling their eyes at me when I'm trying to lead a meeting. It's so unfortunate and it's so sad. And I'm, you know, being open with my supervisor who also identifies as male. I'm just like, well, what do I do? I still want to be a gracious supervisor and colleague. And I check in with them on like, is there something that you need that you feel like I'm not doing? Is there some project that you want to do? And trying to do all the things and it's still not being enough. And I definitely do feel that pressure though. They're putting a lot of pressure on me to not do this work anymore. And that feels like shit. (laughs) Anytime you have that type of incivility, of course, it's going to feel like shit, you know? And here you are busting your ass, living a life that probably those men will never experience one because they're men. So again, like you, they'll just never know what it's like to be a woman mother scholar. They'll just never know that all the intricacies and I'm sure what they see and who knows, I'm not going to project what I think that they would see, but the fact that you're getting those messages loud and clear, I mean, clear meaning they said it was better when you're gone. <laughs> Fuck those guys. You know, like you should just match their energy and just be like, nah, instead of being like placating and being like, is there something I could be doing? No, fuck that shit. Like, excuse me. I saw you, Jim, rolling your goddamn eyes in this meeting. <laughs> you know, is there something you would like to say? Did you yeah. have something in the corner of your eye you just needed to get out with your iris? Like, what? <laughs> I mean, it's so much easier for the two of us to like joke about that. But when you're in that situation and there's these messages and whether they be verbal or nonverbal, it's really hard not to internalize that and think, what am I doing wrong? Instead of turning it around and be like, wow, that guy's a fucking asshole. Like (laughs) I would never roll my eyes in a meeting. The Mm -hmm. the job that I do now, I I work a lot with like workplace violence and civility, Mm -hmm. bullying, and that shit happens all the time. I'm just now kind of in charge of taking those complaints and trying to help people move through that. But it is amazing to me that grown ass humans like still haven't figured it out. I'm like, I don't have the time and energy to be dealing with your bullshit. (laughs) You know, I got a kid. I got a life. Why don't you not be an asshole? And then life will be better here. It's, it seems so easy, but the fact is, is that so many people still struggle so much with communication, still Mm -hmm. struggle so much with the concept of like, we all have to work together. You work at a community college. I work at a community college. Those are small organizations. If there is rifts between departments, within departments, between leaders, everyone feels it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, I mean, you and I are both leaders on campus. And so maintaining that like professionalism. (laughs) Oh, hey, girlfriend. Are you hungry? Hi, my little baby. Hi. Thanks for joining us. You're the first baby on Lady Bits of Leadership. Whoa, look at that. Are you excited? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Are you ready to eat? You ready to eat? Yeah. It's breastfeeding time. Yeah. Okay, if I turn off video. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, breastfeeding is a trip, isn't it? Oh my god, it was so difficult when I started out. And uh, I had to go see the consultant 
twice. So I was just like, I don't understand why it's so painful and why I feel like she's not getting enough to eat, but she's breastfeeding all the time, all the things. And they did, they helped a lot. And now, huh? And now we're super pros and we can write a dissertation while doing it. Did Kaiser Mm -hmm. provide a lactation consultant? Yes. And so I was very, very grateful to have, yeah, to have another human being just like watch and do all the things. And it was very helpful. Is it okay? I feel like we need to talk about this because I haven't talked about lactation consultants yet. And I think it's, it's such a unique, interesting experience. Like for me (laughs) going through pregnancy, I looked at it with a mother scholar's eyes. I was like, Oh my gosh, look at this brand new experience that I get to, I get to really dive into this little subculture of the world. And so lactation consultants, I was not able I was not giving Nainoa enough breast milk. So he got jaundice right away. He turned completely yellow. And I was like, oh, like eyeballs were yellow. Skin was yellow. I was like, oh, help me out. So we had to like put a little feeding tube near my nipple so that he would latch on for breast milk as well as getting some formula because I just wasn't producing Mm -hmm. enough. So I went, you know, they referred me to a lactation consultant. I went, I think I paid 20 bucks each session. And you're right. The experience of like, whipping out your breast for a complete stranger (laughs) and having them like really like feel around the nipple, like squeeze it. So you can see how much milk's coming out, watching your baby latch onto you and really kind of moving the nipple around. (laughs) I had to laugh. I feel like motherhood made me laugh a lot because you're like, in what world, you know, our bodies are often as women taught to be like covered and don't show anyone it except for your loved ones. And you should be, you know, if it's not perfect, you should be ashamed of it. But motherhood, the process of giving birth and, <laughs> you know, the, yes. in, the next like lactation consultant experience, et cetera, really, you really have to get over that, that any kind of like yeah. body shame. So what was your, what was your lactation mm-hmm. consultant? Like, what were some of the funny or interesting things that you remember about meeting with them? Oh my goodness. I think at that point too, I was just like not sleeping, trying to figure it out and so in so much pain that I was just like, you know what? I think like 48 people saw me, saw me completely butt naked, including like the beautiful woman coming in to like clean the floors when I was giving birth. So like at this point, I don't, I don't even care. And I, and I think, you know, it's so funny that you share because it's like I didn't even even like living in Hawaii and everything. I was always ashamed to even wear a bathing suit, even have the full like cover up with my family. I was always like super nervous. And now I'm like whipping out to feed baby wherever or like in front of my family. And my spouse is like, I just I never expected that. And I was like, you know what? Motherhood has really changed my perception of my own body and so my spouse and I went in with our baby and we're like whatever like these are now vehicles to feed my baby and so yeah the woman just like it's like show me how you feed your baby and go like this and she's just like touching me and feeling me and I just like laughed with my partner and was making jokes and being goofy and weird and (laughs) I'm sure the the lactation consultant was just very nice about it because we had tried to do a zoom one and she was like you know what i maybe don't want you uh flashing the camera because there's somebody um gardening outside and they'll be able to see and i want you to have your privacy and i was like yeah maybe that's a little awkward like just flashing a computer screen randomly so going in was odd but a lot better than trying to do it virtually because she's like trying to show me on a puppet like what to do and i was like okay (laughs) 
I can't, I can't. Oh, I wish I had that visual of a breastfeeding puppet. Breastfeeding <laughs> puppet. Literally, she's like, it, is the baby biting like this or like this? And I'm like, okay, we're, we're going to have to come in. I'm yeah, just- that's definitely something that you just are going to have to mask up and go in for. I cannot even. Oh, my gosh. I so I think it's so interesting, your whole pregnancy and, and early motherhood. I mean, just all of it, your whole experience so far has been under the shadow of the pandemic. And, you know, one day you will look back at this and laugh about it. You will talk to your daughter and say like, your life was different than other babies, you know? I know you don't remember it, but it was nutty. Someone tried to show me how to feed you through a puppet on a TV screen. Oh my gosh. So when you finally got to be in person, I it was just much more transformational. Yeah. They do really, they ask you about, and you were experiencing a lot of pain, which is different from the reasons I went in. One of my breasts just would not produce milk. It was like I was producing a sufficient amount of ounces with one and the other one I wasn't. And I was so pissed. First of all, let me tell this quick anecdote (laughs) because I have grown up with really incredibly crooked breasts and everyone was like, well, first of all, I just like lived in the shadows about it. And the only person that knew about it was my mother. And she literally (laughs) promised me, she was like, when you get pregnant and have babies and breastfeed, that stuff will, that'll correct itself your breasts getting engorged with milk, the whole process, like you won't have crooked Mm -hmm. breasts after that. So my whole life, I grew up thinking, well, eventually if I do get pregnant and have a baby, they'll just correct themselves. (laughs) So it's no there. I've wanted a breast surgery for so long um, because it's literally like a B and a D like there, there's a big difference. And, you know, and like I've been married to Leo for a long time and he's like, I love your body. It's so delicious, (laughs) like whatever. And I'm like, And I love that he is like that, that he loves me even with all of my own kind of insecurities. But here I am, finally gave birth, milk has Mm -hmm. come in. And then now the little boob is like, nah, boo, I'm not going to produce any milk. (laughs) I'm like, first of all, why are you still little? Now it's like D boob is like E boob because of the engorgement with the milk. Little boobs, like maybe a, a full C. And I'm mm-hmm. like, and you're not going to produce milk. So you're not just going to be, you know, cause they were saying that like, it doesn't matter how big your breasts are. It doesn't determine mm-hmm. how much milk you make. So mm-hmm. I'm like, you can't be small my whole life, not grow during pregnancy and not produce milk for this child that needs you to just step your game up for one time in your life, little boob. <laughs> One time is what you were literally put on earth for is to make this milk and you won't. So I went to her and I was like, what's going on? So we go through all the exercises. She, you know, we talk about latching. Latching's great. We talk Mm -hmm. about diet. She's like, maybe more oats, maybe drink some Guinness beer, you know? And I was like, okay, that sounds fun. (laughs) Um, I can do that. I can eat oatmeal for every meal. I'll do everything. I'll drink gallons of water. I'll do whatever. But I too was on YouTube. Like, how do I produce more breast milk? I saw her three times. And by the time she was like, you know, not biologically, but physically, some some breasts just don't produce as much milk. Mm -hmm. And literally, as soon as she said that, I was like, okay, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. And I think that there's a lot of things that we take on as it's our, our fault that we're not trying hard Mm -hmm. enough, that -hmm. we're not managing our emotions enough. We put so much shit on ourselves, you know, like why won't my little boob work? It's must be me. I'm not drinking enough water, Mm -hmm. not eating enough oats, not, I was 
breastfeeding, pumping. I was doing all literally every single thing. So it wasn't like I was just feeding with breasts and then it was done. It was like, I was breastfeeding, making formula and pumping every single time. Mm. And as you know, during the first, during that fourth trimester, you're up every two hours, every three hours. It was Mm -hmm. just, it was miserable. And so honestly, the lactation consultant for me was a godsend in that she gave me permission to say no Mm -hmm. more, no more. I've breast, Mm -hmm. I've breastfed you for four months at this point. You're a good, healthy baby. Formula is fine. And that's where we're going because I'm not going to do this anymore. (laughs) Do you feel like your lactation consultant gave you permission and or nuggets of wisdom to move forward. I mean, you're actively breastfeeding right now. So I assume that, you know, and she's eight months old. So things are going well for you. What did your lactation consultant give you that you found so helpful? I think I've had different women in the delivery room to each visit was with a different woman. And this latest lactation consultant really helped because I was like you were saying of like not forgiving myself for going back to work. Um, They had given me a pump and I had already been pumping my breasts so hard to make sure she had milk that I had switched my boobs into like twin mode, they call it of like, I was overproducing just so I could get so much milk in the freezer as a, just in case I couldn't, or just so she had enough of daycare and whatever. And then when I went to work, I almost completely dried up after the second day. The very first day I was on campus, I soaked my shirt without realizing it in front of two of our IT dudes who, bless their heart, are just so sweet. And we're just like, we're going to give you some time. And I like didn't even realize what they're trying to tell me. And my shirt was totally soaked in the front. But by like the second or third day... I was not producing enough milk for her. And I was like, I'm stressing my body out and it's all about me or I'm not eating and drink. Like, what am I doing? And I spoke to the consultant, like, I've got to give the pump back, but I don't know if I can, like, how am I going to continue to do this? And she said, you're doing everything you can as a mother. And she was just like, so reassuring in everything she was saying. She's like, there are some moms who even wean their babies off and then decide, you know what? I do want to keep breastfeeding. And no matter what, I know you're going to be okay. (laughs) It was almost like a counseling session. She didn't have to tell me anything. She was like, you can, I'm going to make sure you get to keep your breast pump. And no matter what, you're going to be okay. And you're doing everything you can for your daughter. And she was right. And the milk came back and we are good. I was talking to some of my students of just like how much privilege there is to be able to have even a lactation consultant. I'm very privileged and grateful that I have insurance where I haven't every single visit and every single call, I haven't had to worry about co-payment or paying for the machine or anything. And so I definitely, it's opened my eyes of like, what can I do to support other women in the community who don't have those opportunities? Because I feel really grateful that there's like this community supporting me because of my health insurance. Which is often so so tied to employment or employers that value. I mean, we both work for colleges, so employers that value that. They were like, I know that when I was going to the lactation consultant, they did tell me about La Leche League. I don't know. I I don't know much about them because, again, I was able to go to and pay for a lactation consultant. But that is something in the community that Mm -hmm. is everywhere. I mean, all across the United States, possibly internationally, I'm not sure, but at least in the U.S., they have groups that do help women of all income levels, postnatal, maternal care, breastfeeding. And, and as we know, there's so much, you can't just isolate breastfeeding. 
Breastfeeding, mm-hmm. like you said, I mean, your lactation consultant was almost like a counselor as well, you know, because there's mm-hmm. a lot of mental health that's connected with breastfeeding and connected with that fourth trimester for our new mamas. Have you seen too? I wish I had had it when I was pregnant. There's a card that you can hand like the assistant who's helping weigh and stuff. And there's something like a, it's almost like a mental health check kind of card of like, please don't weigh me unless you absolutely have to because of X, Y, and Z. Um, I had seen it. I wish I had saved it. I, I wish that I had even just like verbally checked in with folks weighing me because every time I had a weigh in, I would just get, I, I would get so upset. I would get more upset because the doctor, my, my OB every time was always like, you're too big. You're too big. You're too big. You're too big. You're going to, you're going to cause damage to your baby. You're too heavy. Um, and it just weighed on me my entire pregnancy and anything I was feeling of like, you know, I'm having so much pelvic pain. Well, you gain too much weight. And I tell you not to gain so much weight. I mean, I'm not a medical professional. I just know that I could not enjoy my pregnancy because I was physically ill. And also because it was every time we went to the doctors, it was not like, listen to your baby's heartbeat. Like, isn't this incredible? It was like, how, like, what are you eating? What are you doing to yourself? Are you not walking enough? You're so big. Every time that it was just like, I wish I was more vocal or like even like mentally had that card with me of just like, it's not necessarily about the weight, thinking about mental health through the process. I think when I, when I was thinking about getting pregnant, honestly, that was the thing. And even thinking about if I want to have a second child, I'm like, okay, well, I have to be at a certain weight in order to do that. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of like, part of it is because health reasons, right? Like I already live in a 210 pound, almost six feet body. Like it's hard for me to get up to like, by the peak, I was at 250. You know, I'd never seen that number before on the scale, but I had accepted that I was going to. But there was this sense of building myself up like you have worked your whole life to mm-hmm. either maintain or lose weight. Mm-hmm. And for many women, many women, mm-hmm. weight is constantly on their mind because mm-hmm. we live in a world that socializes us to believe that that's that is something that we have to do. And so it's inevitable as women getting pregnant, you're going to gain a significant amount of weight between the bloating and the pregnancy and the actual body that's in your body. (laughs) And you grew a whole organ, you know, to to support them. The placenta is a a whole Mm -hmm. organ that we just made because we're fucking miracle unicorns, goddesses. (laughs) And yet here we are being chastised by asshole doctors who are like, didn't I tell you not to gain weight? It's like, bitch, I can't even sit up straight. I'm (laughs) writing my dissertation on my phone. But again, there's that sense of like, there's a hesitation within us to stand up for ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, do you think that if you were to do it again, do you think drawing on that experience, you would feel a sense of like empowerment to stand up for yourself or would you approach it differently? I feel like I should have at that very first time he would give me a mantra every time I would leave. Not like, congrats, I'll see you in a month. It's like, walk more, eat less. Remember, walk more, eat less. Every time I was leaving the door and see, even like just talking to you, I'm just like, I see that same pattern reflected at work. And it's like, I want it to always be an educational moment. And I feel like I would want to tell him like, I'm sure I know you mean well. And coming from someone who had a very serious eating disorder in middle school, I I really want you to think twice about when you're saying that I'm not comfortable coming back. 
to see you again because of it. And this is kind of the effect that you've had on me. Like, thank you. I'm going to go seek somebody else. And I don't even live in that area, but I feel like I should still send them a message to let them know like how deeply it still affects me. And my baby is healthy and eight months old and I've lost all of my pregnancy weight. And just to be like, you are maybe really like deeply affecting some other women and this is not okay. I mean, I know you have a million and one things to do, but I think it would be worth it. If anything, just for your own healing to kind of close that chapter that's still something that weighs heavy on you that you'll that will always be a part of your birth and pregnancy story, you know? And so if you can just like, if you can know that you did what you could to stand up for future women who are going through that, if you feel comfortable talking about your eating disorder, I'd love to talk about what that was like for you and how you healed from that. I mean, that was seventh grade. So that feels like so long ago, but like, I really thought about it a lot during pregnancy because I I was like 85 pounds and I had convinced everyone around me that I was fine and eating and my parents never said anything. So many people are like, you look great. And only one person from our school's mother was like, I'm worried about you. But that was to the extent, but no one saw me eat anything. I just stopped eating and I was still doing basketball practice and we were doing like two a day basketball practices and I was always feeling faint, but they just thought I was a bad basketball player. I was also, (laughs) but uh, it was also like, I had no food to go off of it. And like, they would have the pizza days at school and they're like, what's wrong? And I was like, oh man, my mom made such a big breakfast. Plus my, my dad's going to make a big dinner tonight and we got the game or whatever. But it just amazes me to like only that one person's mom ever said anything. And I was like losing my hair and I was like skin and bones and no one had said anything. And it was for almost a year. And I was so little. I'm like, um, and it was like half of what I, I am now. I think for me as a mom with a child, just thinking of like, how would I have that conversation with my child? And I would would I notice right away? And I would hope I'd notice right away. It took a year and a half and just me getting comfortable and switching schools because I went from middle school to high school and getting new friends. And I was just like, oh, I, I want to eat again and I'm good. But it just was such a long time. No one ever said anything. Reflecting back, how did you get to the place where you stopped eating? Was it a slow transition to eat less and less and less until it was just like, I'm going to eat like 500 calories a day, maybe? I don't even remember. I remember weird things about it of like, I would eat one thing Newton and it would take me an hour. I'm like, how weird is that to think about? Like, just, I have really like short memories of what things were, but there were always comments because like it was seventh grade. I didn't have a lot of friends, was always being bullied. At home, if we were eating pizza and ice cream, my dad would be like, do you want more of that? Really? And also just like the layers of multiracialness of my mom saying, oh, you know, you have your dad's side of the family body. You're not like us. You're not like a skinny Japanese girl. You know, you've got those real Italian hips. And just like at that developmental age, right, of going from like, 12 to 13 and starting to develop, I was like really taking those messages to heart. And I don't, I don't remember how I started doing it because nowadays I'm like, oh man, 
intermittent fasting or whatnot. I did it for my wedding and I had lost like 20 pounds for the wedding. I was like, oh man, I can't go back to that. I have no idea. Just like I was so depressed in seventh grade that I, it was just easy to not eat. Just so sad. That's a young girl. Seventh grade is such a pivotal time for us, mm-hmm. you know, because our bodies are changing and we're getting these mixed messages about our worth and about our, <laughs> about how we should be, you know, mm-hmm. physically. And I think oftentimes we are taught to be small, mm-hmm. you know, that smaller is better. And I think mm-hmm. that plays in mentally too, to like not take up space and not argue back. And there's just so much that's ingrained with us in seventh grade that we are unlearning for decades, decades after that. And the more positivity that we can experience, you know, whether it be body positivity or empowering messages versus like, and we love our families, right? But they say things that really kind of fuck with our heads. <laughs> I mean, your mom being like, you have Italian hips. Now I'm like, oh my gosh, Italian hips. Hell yeah. You know, (laughs) get those wide hips. You and I also are a similar age, if not the same age. So we grew up in the early nineties. We're like the Christina Aguilera's and the Britney Spears and like being super tiny was, Mm -hmm. was the style. And now I feel like curviness is, is the style, if not just at bare minimum accepted. Like Mm -hmm. women have hips, surprise, biology, (laughs) we got to hold babies. And I think like you said, you know, going through pregnancy, going through birth where you're whole, you're so vulnerable and you're so exposed Mm -hmm. and you have witnessed your body do literally miraculous things does fundamentally, hopefully for many women, change the way that they view their bodies. Less about aesthetics. Right? Like uh, the Christina Aguilera's and Britney Spears, and I had their posters all up. And just to think now and ending my doctoral program and also hopefully continuing scholarship and learning of just like, how is that also linked our body positivity or what our minds were in for me back in those days of like, how does race or even white supremacy come into so much of that of like, I was constantly comparing myself to white women and my body is different than that. And like, so culturally too, like where are we finding appreciation and not is so eye-opening and helpful of like, how much did I try and straighten my hair or highlight my hair or do whatever to my body to get out of the skin or the identity that I was in and how do I embrace that now? And how is my body part of my culture? Like even that reclamation of my name and everything, it comes with it. How do you identify? And then I also want to talk about that reclamation of your name, because Mm. when I knew you, you were Misha and now you have a new name to me, but it was never a new name for you. And so why don't you share with us, uh, you know, your identities as well as talk a little bit about the reclamation of your name. Uh, My mom is Japanese and Okinawan and my dad is or was Southern Italian with mixes of Middle Eastern that were trying to learn the history. And yeah, that's always growing up. I've always been told, oh, you're half this and half that. And I love how there's so many beautiful books now that talk about you are whole um, for mixed race kids. And I really want and have been using those books with my daughter to make sure that she never feels fragmented. Cause I feel like there was always this, like you are these parts 
you are separate versus like you are this whole being with all of these different beautiful cultures. And so I was named, my dad chose the name Michiko for me and it's beautiful and it means beautiful, wise child. He intentionally chose it to honor, you know, my mom's ancestry. And so I always find it interesting the way my mom like laughs it off of like, you know, that was such a like complicated name and it was such a big name. It was the Empress of Japan's name. And we didn't know how smart you would be in preschool. Like that's such a long name to spell. So we thought like Misha might be just like easier for you as a little girl. And even in high school and college, I kept trying to use Michiko. And I remember being at a University of the Pacific, I think it's, was it? The Wendell Phillips, like that big auditorium theater in there. And they would like the teacher would get to the M's. And I always knew when she would get to my name or if it was somewhere near the middle of the alphabet, because I would see the teacher staring at the paper and being like, and I would just like raise my hand and be like, yeah, it's OK. You could just call me Misha if it's easier. And that just became the habit. Right. Is always just like placating and saying, oh, you know, I'm sure it's so hard. Like Misha's fine. Misha's fine. Misha's fine. And I think there was a couple different things that happened is I became a part of a Japanese American, like young women's leadership group. And I wanted to use my name. And so I had people that were Japanese American that actually knew how to say Michiko and say my name. And that also just opened my eyes to people in the community seeing me and being like, you don't look like a Michiko. Like, why would your parents name you that? But also just trying to reclaim it. And it was interesting when I, you know, applied for my job being asked, you know, oh, is there, do you have a nickname? And then being, it being added to the directory. And then finally saying, you know what? Change the directory name. I want it to be my real name. I want it to be Michiko. My dad intentionally chose that name for me. It means beautiful, wise child. And I love that. And then the school district, like having a cow of like, oh, that's so hard for people for you to change your name. And I was like, how many people do you say this to? And I talked to my male supervisor, like trying to unpack. I was like, you also don't use your name. And it was like uh, to just give them their own privacy since I haven't shared. It was like from Alexander to Paul. You know, two very easy names, but they they went more as Paul. I was like, how many times has anybody approached you about how difficult changing your name in the system was? He was like, literally never. And I was like, I have five people calling me up a day, like how difficult it is for them that I have changed my name to my real name. <laughs> I think for me, having a lot of my students who have been at the school for a while know that I've reclaimed my name, they're like, because of this, and we've done some workshops together mm-hmm. um, that I really appreciate is like the students are now going to their own faculty members saying like, no, you, I would prefer that you not call me Jasmine. It's Yasmin. Or like, it's not Diana, it's Diana. Or, you know, I don't want you to use this nickname for me anymore. I want you to use my Chinese name because that is my name. So I, I have appreciated that journey and doing that with students of like, why is it important for us? It is, it's funny, right? To see Misha Maji on things and then being like, wow, none of that is my name anymore. The culture is changing as you've seen with even your students being like, that's your identity. Go by Michiko. Like 
the tide is changing. And I think that that's very hopeful. And the world that our children are going to grow up in will be very different from the college students that we're working with now. And hopefully, I mean, the way that I'm seeing things are moving towards the better. So I just wanted to close by, I know that you shared that you are published in a book. I feel very, very lucky that I got to work with a professor and publish in an international journal. Um, And then there is a chapter in a book coming out, but it was basically just writing about what it was like to dissertate during the pandemic. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, when this episode comes out, we'll link to it. So that way, you know, in the show notes, we can have links to it. So people who might be interested in going into a doctorate program who are just curious about what it takes to be a scholar mama during a pandemic, you know, can have a little more insight. What was the purpose of going into the doctorate program? And what do you think has been the most important thing you've taken away, the most important lessons that you've taken away? You know, I had wanted to do a doctorate for a while of just like going in for my master's program, being super confident, being like, I'm going to be a dean or a vice president of a college or I'm going to be a president of a college. So I need to go get my doctorate. There was a lot of that. But also, I think that it was a lot of humbling of like, I had so much imposter syndrome. It took me seven or eight years in between the master's program to um, get find a doctorate program that I liked and really like deciding, you know, do I want this program to, and it, it was the scholars who were part of the program of like, truly, you have to think about why you want to do this program. Cause it's going to be, you know, a lot of time and energy and be difficult, let alone if people don't get scholarships, what does that look like? Is it merely to climb up the ladder? Like there are other prop programs that you can do that with, or are you ready for self-discovery and challenging and finding a like a part of yourself that you did not know existed. That for me, it's just been just this incredible experience where, because I'm in that process right now of working on the last chapter. And so sometimes I like take little breaks and work on the acknowledgements of, you know, thanking my dissertation chair, not only because she's gotten me through the process or been validating or helped me publish or encouraged me to become a faculty member. Like she has literally given my family more knowledge about our history. And she's given us like history back. Like she's given us a piece of our own family that we didn't know existed. Like that is irreplaceable and like so incredibly invaluable. Like that's changed my life. And so in getting to talk to some of my students who are also first-generation college students like me, Like I would have never thought like this little girl who hated school and super struggled reading and still struggle reading would write like this 300 page research paper that it is possible. And that it's just like in a subject that you love and you're passionate about. And so it's amazing how that writing process can be like so illuminating and joyful. Um, And so, yeah, getting to share that with my students has been really helpful because yeah, it's been incredible. And I, it feels weird to be almost done and I hope to get there soon. I love that you've shared so much of your journey. I'm so appreciative to have you on here. If there's any, um, 
last nuggets of wisdom for women out there who are trying to increase their confidence, who are trying to step into their power, what would you say to them? I feel like I've seen this shared online of like, how would you validate a friend or how would you validate your own child? And how can you do that for yourself too? And so for me and the things that I, I hope for my child, like how do I also hope for those things for me too? And so I feel like I have so much imposter syndrome and doubt and whatever. And then it's like, what would I tell myself if I were my child or not? I mean, that's not like big words of wisdom, but it's like ultimately, you know, for the folks listening, you are not alone and you are loved and you are seen and you are heard. And there are other women out there experiencing similar and also very different things. And to feel vulnerable and reach out is so important because there is a community willing to embrace you and love you for exactly who you are and also help you like get to where you want to be too. My loves, my loves, my loves, you've reached the end of another gorgeous and informative episode of Lady Bits and Leadership. Wasn't that fun? Don't you want more of this? If so, make sure you go to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us. It would be so helpful in not only letting me know what you loved about this episode or what you want more of, but also to help others find us and find our community. I mean, isn't that so cool that you have the power to help someone get in touch with her lady bits and feel less alone and become more empowered? What? So send it on to someone that you know, email it, text it, message it. I would be so appreciative. Anyway, This is Dr. Sarah Vogel signing off. I can't wait to see you next week.